invite you at this time to open your Bibles to the fourth gospel, John's gospel. We're looking at John chapter 4, and today we hope to finish up this wonderful narrative, this gospel narrative between Jesus and the woman at the well, otherwise known as the Samaritan woman. Jesus has been traveling quite a bit. He's made the trek some 70 miles from Jerusalem to the countryside of Judah, and from there the baptizing took place. He recognized it was perhaps a good time to move on from there, so he's headed to Galilee, which is the region just above Samaria. So now he's at Sychar, which is just a stone's throw or so, a few miles from Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, where worship took place there by the Samaritans. And so he had to go there, the text said in verse 4 of chapter 4, that he had to uh, go to Samaria. And, well, it could simply mean that if he's going to Galilee, he would need to go through Samaria. But it's, also, it's already got to be somewhat, it's definitely unorthodox that he would go through Samaria, given that he is a Jewish man. He's the God man, but he's a Jewish man, and they had nothing to do as John pointed out in the text, parenthetically, he had, the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. They looked down their nose at the Samaritans, and they did everything that they could to not even set foot in Samaria. They had no dealings with them at all. So not only is he here, he's tired, he's weary, the text says. He's thirsty. He's every bit 100% man. And he's at a well. Jacob's well, this well has a lot of history. It apparently it still exists there today through the millennia. It's uh, not been argued that that is the same well that Jacob had, uh, had dug. And she points that out, of course, the Samaritan woman to Jesus. And he's, she comes walking up. It's the middle of the day. It's noon. It's hot. They typically, women typically get, go to the wells to get the water for their homes and they typically come when it's cooler, either in the morning or in later on in the day. So there's a good reason, at least stirs our curiosity, as to why she would be there in the middle of the day when it's particularly hot and she's there all alone. It's interesting also providentially that the disciples aren't with him either. And so that's not lost on us. That is that providentially she is absolutely alone with the God-man, with Messiah, who she recognizes as Messiah. And so they have this wonderful um, evangelical uh, gospel-oriented narrative that happens there. And I, I think it's important to see that. I'm, uh, it's important that Jesus, as he points out to others as well in other places of the gospels, that he is not there to judge people. He's not there to judge her. And so this has got to be shocking for her because she's no doubt been an outcast in her town through the years because she's, he says to her, go and get your husband. And she said, I have no husband. And he said, you're, you're right in saying you've had no husband. As a matter of fact, you've gone through five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. So you're not even married to the man that you're, you're living with. So it was important to point out the truth of her life, but he's not there to judge her. He's not there to hold a trial and punish her. He's not there with a group to support him in that effort, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees traveled around with their robes and their tassels and phylacteries, pointing out the things that people are doing wrong. And he's not there to do that. He's there to extend grace. But she's got to understand her need for grace, and he does that masterfully with gentleness and kindness and most winsome is he. So we're picking up from the narrative good evangelical skills, good skills to apply as we're giving the gospel to other people. So we, we've been examining him all along, and we finish up the last portion in this uh, two-part series. We have part two to, of the Savior of the world from verse 27 to 42. So the disciples show up. He runs, or she runs off to town to tell the townspeople of Sychar, come and see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? So she's already convinced, but she doesn't want to be arrogant about it. She's going to let them discover that for themselves. They, 
She comes in the form of a question, which is far more effective than a pronouncement or, or a declaration from her, since she's already someone that they look down their noses at. And so they come. And so now they're coming, and we'll pick it up here in uh, verse 34 and finish the text through 42. Let's read this together. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For there, here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Verse 40, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, this journey through your exchange with the Samaritan woman and how see, she has found life everlasting, having recognized the Messiah. Jesus Christ. We thank you that you used her testimony, someone who surely was an outcast and ostracized from her town for her lifestyle, her immoral lifestyle, and yet you spoke to her. You spoke, most importantly, to her heart. It, it takes God, it takes you, O oh Lord, to reveal yourself to people that are sincerely inquiring as to who you are. And so, Lord, it is with a request that we would be sincere in our investigation of the final portion of this narrative with the Samaritan woman, that we would learn all we can from it and that you would receive glory from engaging in it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this verse 42 that it ends with is where we get the title of this two-part series from. They recognize for themselves that he is the Savior of the world. And this verse 42, where it says that, that particular moniker or expression or that designation or identifying him, Jesus, in that way is the only place that that is done in all four Gospels, where it says he's called the Savior of the world. Indeed, you remember from the first chapter, verse 29, that's the only place in the Gospels where he's known as and declared as from John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see a theme here. We see that he has uh, declared the Savior of the world in our text and in that previous text that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you recall when we went through that. Just some further Old Testament texts that would be prophesying. That's exactly what he came to do. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me. Turn to me. This is the Hebrew understanding of what repentance means. It means to turn and, and, and follow God. It means to turn away from the sins uh, of self and the world and turn toward God. So turn to me and be saved. And who is he saying that to? all the ends of the earth. So unfortunately, the Jews had made this sort of exclusive, like we are the chosen people of God, so salvation is of the Jews. Well, no, salvation is of the Jews in terms of you have now been giving, given the way to Messiah. And they're not sharing that information because of the hatred that's in their heart which has shut them off to the Samaritan people and any, any other Gentile for that matter, but particularly the Samaritans. But you, you, you can't help but wonder how they handled these kinds of prophetic texts. Like Isaiah 
uh, 52 and verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so this is the very purpose for which Jesus is born. When we look at the beginning of the Gospels, the narratives that speak of the Christ child being born, Luke 2, we just covered that when we were going through uh, Christmas time, Luke 2, verse 10 and 11, the angel said to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Very clear. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, and there's the word again, a Savior who is Christ, that is Messiah, the Lord. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's exactly what we've been witnessing happening at the well. And now with all of the townspeople from Sychar, we're seeing that God has brought the light. It takes the light because we were, he, the people were dwelling in a great darkness. You remember those prophecies. So a light had to come. It had to shine to open up their eyes to see him as Messiah, see him for who he is. And he's done that just in a, in a brilliant and tender way with the woman at the well. And now her testimony has caused these people in a great crowd to come up to see him themselves. It's just wonderful, wonderful text. Romans 10, Paul put it this way in verse 11 to 13. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no difference. He's making that abundantly clear. It couldn't be more succinct. It's difficult to deny. The same Lord is Lord of all, he goes on to say, who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. That's an indicative. That, that is a necessary fact. It is a truth that those who call upon him, and it doesn't matter what ethnicity they are. It doesn't matter what nationality. It doesn't matter what gender. It doesn't matter what their station in life is, as, as Galatians 3.28 points out, slave or, or free. It doesn't matter who you are because everyone has the same need, right? And so one of the saddest things, for instance, it made me think of that you could ever hear someone say who You've invited to come to church because you want them to see Jesus. You want them to see the Messiah. And he's revealed through his word, of course, so you want them to come. You're, you're like the Samaritan woman, right? We like to say that to people we know and we're praying for. Come see a man, right? And he must be presented from this place or we've failed. And so the saddest thing is to hear someone say, uh, I, I couldn't do that. Why not? I, I don't feel comfortable there yet. Why? I don't really fit in. No, now I know you're one of us, right? Because that's all the way we feel. We're all sinners in need of grace. And so when they see that in the town of Sychar with this woman at the well who's lived this, this pattern of immorality in her life, they're encouraged and they're coming we hope that the people that we reach out to, that we pray for, would come to see a man. Not a man with lowercase m, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, that they wouldn't feel as though they couldn't be there because of some gross sin or immorality or whatever they've done. This is exactly where they need to be. This is the Lord's hospital. This is where people come in wounded, and their wounds are to be bound up with the balm of Gilead, with the salve that only Christ can offer, made out of his own blood that was shed for their sake. That's why we're here. Remember Jesus in John 4.34 said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He found no greater joy, satisfaction, contentment than soul winning. Winning souls. I mean, how did that feel to him as a man leading people to himself? 
because he's the Messiah. It's pretty awesome if you think about it. I who speak to you am he, he said to her. With, we can imagine, just a great effulgence of joy that he had because he loved her. He's the cre- he was the agent of creation. He knows her that well. He knows everything about her. And she realizes that. Come see a man who told me everything about me, everything that I ever did. And he still he accepted me with grace and mercy and love. But he told the truth. He spoke the truth in love. Amazing man. Amazing God. So fulfilling these tasks, this this evangelism, and and I hope that we'll get excited about evangelism here this morning as we finish this up, because I don't know that there's a greater sort of extended text on evangelism than to see our master by himself alone with somebody that he's witnessing to, and she's saved. And not only that, but this is also the only place in the Gospels where a whole town is saved. It's also the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is invited and stays for two days to teach them. What was that like? Right? Pretty amazing. Text in Scripture is typically silent on a lot of things. We don't know what took place with Paul when he was out in that Nabataean wilderness being tutored. There's no elaboration at all, just that he went there and did that and came back a changed man. Now he knew where the Christ was, or who the Christ was for sure. So it's a proclamation of the truth, a revelation of himself. These are what gets him, these are the things that spur him on, uh, even more than, as Job put it, more than his necessary food that he needs to keep going. Now, this is his sustenance. This is his nourishment. This is what gets him excited the harvesting of souls to see them come as he's going to be using that um, analogy in our text real soon here. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, verse 4, he's saying to the Father in that beautiful prayer, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What a sense of satisfaction to go from that prayer and very soon after, be on the cross in that excruciating pain and able to say, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's over. It's over. So what clear and convincing evidence we have than we have right here of the love of Jesus Christ, that the work of God in the conversion of souls is his greatest nourishment, the greatest nourishment of his soul, pretty amazing he says john speaking of the human author of this gospel in his first epistle chapter 4 verse 14 he'll use that expression again and we have seen that's the key we have to see him and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world just remarkable there's um five different points I want to make this morning very briefly as we finish up this text this morning so that we have some things to hang our hats on in terms of aspects, different aspects of soul winning because he's passed that mantle on to who? Us, all of us. And we've learned a lot and are still learning more from the scripture with this, with regard to this. So the first point I want to make as we begin with verse 35 is The work of soul winning is plentiful. There's plenty of work to be done, right? I mean, that's clear. He makes that clear in this text, and it's made clear in other texts. But he says here in the text, Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. This four months, then comes the harvest. You'll see some single quotation marks around it. It's thought to be an old proverb or an old adage that uh, he's citing there, something they would be very familiar with. And he's using that analogy to get them to realize, you know, now is the time for the harvest, but he's going to make that spiritual connection with the people that are coming up from Sychar to meet with him. So it could be that, or maybe harvest time, 
with the crops was literally four months away. We don't know, but it doesn't matter. This, not only this text, but many places throughout the Gospels, as you're well aware, Jesus uses metaphor, he uses figures of speech, he uses a proverb, he'll use uh, all, all different techniques, uh, parables and so on, to make the point as we, as we see this. So this is a whole other spiritual harvest that he's talking about here. It's not a literal harvest of crops for temporary consumption. This is the harvesting of souls for eternal life that he's talking about here. However, he doesn't mean to imply, obviously, that this spiritual harvest is going to be accomplished in four months, four literal months. It's just a saying, just some way he has to communicate, hey, guess what? It's time for the harvest. Sometimes we might not notice that. We might not see that the field is actually white to the harvest for us. People around us who don't know Christ and need to. And we're called upon to share Christ with them. Then he says this, lift up your eyes. That's also an interesting expression that's used in the Old Testament. It's used in Isaiah and a couple of different places. Uh, Also, as far back as Genesis, it just means to draw your attention. It's like, hey, take a look at this. Think about this. It's getting their focus off of, well, you can imagine what their focus is on because they go to town to get food. They come back, and the text, remember, from last week says, just then... The disciples walked up just when, right when he was saying, I who speak to you am. There is no pronoun in the text. There's no he. The writers put that in to make it make sense. He's saying, I am is speaking to you. So it can, it, it's, not, <clears throat> it's not amazing to us then that they're not asking their usual questions. Why are you bothering the rabbi? You know, why, why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? That question isn't asked, and we can see them standing there dumbstruck because of what he just said. Now he's saying, lift up your eyes. Now you need to look at something because I want you to see what is happening here from my little exchange and revealing myself to this Samaritan woman, look, look, look there. It's, not, it, it's also obviously literally physically looking, but it's instead of looking at things horizontally among people, cast your gaze heavenward. Look at what God is doing. And isn't it wonderful that he's using us instrumentally to, to bring in this great harvest of souls? Lift up your eyes. They're all here. To, they're all coming to listen to the truth, of course. So it's another uh, figure of speech. It's figuratively. He means that. Lift up. Lift your gaze up. And then it says, white for the harvest. Used metaphorically, he's speaking about, as I mentioned, to the people, to the people that got her testimony, and now they're coming up to see this Savior. He uses a the same harvest metaphor in Matthew 9. You're familiar with this, verse 36 to 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is his work. We're doing this for him. He's the one who has to save them. You're just being used instrumentally. So, but I love his compassion. I love the fact that he sees a harassed and bedraggled, this helpless people like sheep without a shepherd. There's nobody there to feed them, to uh, protect them. There's nobody there because, and they're so lost in their lives like the Samaritan woman is. So there's your harvest, he says to him there. There's your harvest. But why does he use all of these old proverbs, adages, figures of speech, parables? Why does he do that? Because the imagination is most powerful. 
And it's more effective, and again, this is a note for our evangelism box, okay? It's good to use those kinds of things because that gets people's attention. And without using direct speech, like why doesn't he just say, hey, look, here comes some people that need the gospel. He's using all of these figures of speech instead. This is the harvest. What did that conjure up in their minds? All these that are walking are the head, these in the metaphor, heads of the stalks of the wheat are actually heads of human souls that the Lord is harvesting. God Almighty is harvesting. Much more effective to do it than direct speech. And often all we can think of is we think it's our call to use direct speech, and I think it's more creative to find ways. Uh, Spurgeon said that illustrations are windows to the truth. It gets people's attention, if nothing less. Instead of just speaking directly, it's a very effective uh, technique of communication. Verse 36, already the one who reaps, here he goes, he's still sticking with this metaphor, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. And so remember, when he's, using with the par- when he's using the parables with the literalists, right, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're confused, right? And so he does that deliberately, doesn't he? Yeah, he's doing that deliberately. He- he's telling them because he knows that they won't run off because of being challenged by some concept, some spiritual biblical concept. If he starts citing verses, they're going to be taking notes. Every jot and tittle. I'm listening to every word that you say and how you say it they, with their robes and their phylacteries and their, and their tassels. No, this is a harvest. They're there. You're, there's been people sowing into their lives. You're the reapers. Isn't that a wonderful role for you to have? And sometimes you're a sower. Most of the time we're sowers. Sometimes you get to be the reaper, don't you? Isn't that wonderful? Either way, it's, it's powerful. So this is meant to both humble and encourage believers. It humbles us. To know that we're not the... Sometimes if we get the pleasure and the privilege of being the one that God lights up and brings to the cross and they're saved, um, that can pander to our pride. We can think, boy, I guess I got it right this time. No, you probably didn't get it right any time. <laughs> not perfectly. Only he does that. Um, we don't know if we're sowing or if we're reaping. And that, that humbles up, but it's supposed to encourage you too. Because there's other people at work. I have family members that are as lost as a ball in high weeds. That's one of my favorite metaphors. And, um, but you know what? I rest in the confidence that are, there are others up there. I have a brother who's a solid Christian that's up in my hometown. And I know he's witnessing Christ. And so we, we can be comforted in that. But also we got to mind our, our pride as well. Fruit for eternal life. Isaiah 27, verse 6. Here we have another horticultural metaphor. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Where will he do that? Just in Israel? What does it say? Whole world. Whole world, this, this, this metaphor is applying to, isn't it? These roots are going everywhere. I've got to scatter my apostles, my disciples to do that through persecution. Otherwise, they'll just hang out where it's comfortable. You remember what happened? Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches that long and powerful sermon, and they stone him to death, and they go, what? Yep, it scattered him, but it... They went into the places that they were called to go. Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 16, first part, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, note that, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit shall abide. 
It's a wonderful proverb. Proverbs 11.30 says this, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. See, there's, there's these kinds of expressions throughout Scripture. It says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. That's our business. That's why we're here drawing breath. That is the sole reason. There's other things that we do according to supplement that calling, being fruitful and multiplying, family life, contributing to the community with whatever your calling is, occupationally, all of those things, of course. But our primary reason for being on this earth is what's happening right here, is to witness Jesus Christ. So... I like what uh, Charles Bridges said. Charles, not Jerry, this is the 19th century Charles Bridges, wrote commentary on Proverbs. He only who purchased them by his blood can win them to himself. And the person who knows the work, those of us who are familiar with how he does that, will but give him all the praise. Yet has he set apart men for the work of drawing souls to God, and to the love of him, sweetly gaining and making a holy conquest of them to God. That's us, onward Christian soldiers. That's what we're to be doing. That's what we're to be engaged in because souls are lost and there's an enemy of all of us who wants to keep it that way, right? So it's not going to be easy. There's people that lose their life for witnessing around the globe, isn't there? John 15, 8, the Lord says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So we give evidence that we actually belong to Christ where we're witnessing him. What kind of a, what kind of a disciple of Jesus Christ would I be if I didn't witness him to other people? So we do that in whatever opportunities that we have. And so if I'm doing a funeral for a family, I've done funerals for families of unbelievers, that's the condition. I'm going to give the gospel, or uh, I'm sorry, you'll have to find someone else. You're going to hear the gospel. It's going to be clear and evident because there's nothing more poignant than the moment at which a loved one has been lost. And these souls will be equally lost if no one tells them about the Christ. The second point I want to make is the work of soul winning should not be confined to a sense of duty. How many times have we been tempted to sort of shrug our shoulders and say, oh, I suppose I should be. <laughs> I suppose I should be witnessing. My goodness, we've missed something there, haven't we? I mean, there's something missing there. More than just fear of man, which we need to conquer as well. That needs to be repented of. More than that, it's just, why should that be begrudging to me? I try to catch myself, I hope you do too, when I'm sort of, oh, I don't want to have to, wait, hold up, hold up. You live because of him. <laughs> I'm alive because of him. And so he's saying, I made you alive so that I could use your voice box. Is that going to be okay? <laughs> yes, sir. So, this was Jesus' food and drink, as I said. This is, he sat at the well thirsty for water, but as Bridges says, far more intensely did he thirst for the soul of the poor sinner before him. And having won her to himself, he forgot his own physical wants and the joy of her salvation. The last thing he's thinking about is water. He's thinking about her. He surely was thirsty, literally, physically, but there's a reason he asked a Samaritan woman this question, don't you see? And there's a reason when the disciples... By the way, why did it take all the disciples to go get sandwiches? Uh, we'll deal with that later. Uh, so they're showing up with their food and they're saying, here, you've got to eat, you've got to eat. They're worried about... We talked about that last week. And this... I, you, can, you can just see that he is saying, so to speak, I hadn't even thought about my physical hunger. I am so filled with joy at this precious woman and how she's recognizing me for who I am. That, that's my food. That's my drink. So Bridges asks, do we love our Lord? 
arise. Let us follow this happy work. Are you happy? If we aren't, we may not be fulfilling what he called us to. If we have a grumbling spirit, maybe we're focused too much on things earthbound and we need to look up. As he says to his disciples, look up, look up. There's a spiritual work that you're here for. You need to focus on that. Romans 1.13, Paul beginning that powerful soteriological epistle. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that, this is why he's coming, here's a purpose clause, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, picked up that same metaphor from Jesus, didn't he? that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He recognizes his specific call is to the Gentiles. And I can't wait to get back at it. I was hoping to get to Rome. And he's anxious to get to Rome to get some harvest from them. The harvest from believers that already exist in Rome at this church in Rome would be to see how much they've grown spiritually. That's the harvest there, but also among the Gentiles, he makes clear. I want to talk to more unsaved people, specifically Gentiles, because Gentiles, the way they would respond by and large By and large, when he would go into a town, you remember we went all the way through the book of Acts. He'd go into a town. Where would he go to preach? The the synagogue. What would the response typically be? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, not so good. There'd be a few that would get saved and so on. But mostly they not only rejected him, they did so in the most vehement way. They they. They hated him. They were filled with resentment that I'm not sure they knew fully where it was coming from. But there's just something about this man that I don't like. We have that phrase. There's something about this man that I don't like about myself. Right? It's when we see our sins and other people, that projection issue, and we're like, oh, that guy just bothers me. Hmm, I should look in the mirror. But when he would get to the Gentiles, what would happen? I mean, they were... They were just because they're used to be look, used to being looked down upon by the Jews. Here you've got Paul, the Apostle Paul, in this case, who is studied under the notable Gamaliel, the teacher in Israel, and very well respected. I mean, he, he this gets through to them. This gets through to them. He said to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, For what is our hope or joy or crown? See, it needs to be more than a sense of duty. We should let our convictions do their work. Ah, I really should be witnessing more, right? Has anybody arrived? You're doing all the witness? You're satisfied with all the witnessing you're doing? Exactly. So me neither. So, but let that conviction come, but do a good work with it. Know that we're missing out on some joy. We're, we're missing out on a whole lot of joy. The white, the, the field, the harvest is white and ready. It's there now more than ever. Is there a contrast, at least in our culture in America, between those that are truly believers with their eyes open and their souls saved and those who are not, who are blind And so we see Jesus being clever in how he crafts his open-ended question. He doesn't tell her things. He draws things out of her. That wonderful, he's sitting by a metaphor, that wonderful metaphor that's used in Proverbs. The heart is a deep well, right? And it takes a man of understanding to draw that out. It takes a little bit more work and more thought on our part, but if we really love people the way he's calling us to, we'll take the time to do that and to pray for them as well. So going on with 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? It's souls. That's what he says. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You. If you've had someone who the Lord was pleased to rescue that you were instrumental of, you've never known a greater joy because you're satisfying the very reason why you're here. 
I often mention that we're not a social club. This isn't a social club. This is the Lord's soul-winning project. This is His enterprise from Genesis 3 on, and even before, really. This was His plan. This brings Him glory, and we're all participating in it. 3 John 4 says, I have, this is where John, again, on his third epistle, says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's wonderful. There's nothing more grievous than for someone like John to see somebody filled with somebody that he witnessed to or that was in his church in Ephesus or wherever, filled with deception and lies and and suffering for it because they'll suffer for it. They suffer for their own deception. So he's loving the fact that he's getting reports that they're actually walking in the truth. He's blessed by that. The expression, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. So whether you were sowing or you were reaping, we all have reason to rejoice together. Colossians 1, 5 to 7. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in, here it is, the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the third point I want to make is that the reward for soul winning is incorruptible and eternal. So we all hope to, to get to that place when the Lord calls us home where he says, well done, what? Good and faithful Servant. The rest of the things that aren't in accord with what he's called us to is the wood, hay, and stubble of 1 Corinthians 3 that just burns up. We want the gems that survive that fire, right? That's the point. 1 Peter 1 4 says he refers to it as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You couldn't get a greater reward for anything that you're doing on this planet, as noble as it might be, than this, than to submit yourself to soul-winning, be part of the soul-winning enterprise. Oh, yeah, here it is. I've got it for you. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 14. You're familiar with this. And Paul's using yet another metaphor here. Scripture's filled with it. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw... Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So there it is. If it survives the great fire, the great fire of what? Of his scrutinizing the things that we're occupying ourselves with that either accrue to the building of the body of Christ. We're all living stones, right? Isn't that what Peter wrote? We're all living stones and we're being built up in Christ. You can look at Ephesians chapter 4, 12 to uh, 16 as well. We're building ourselves up in Christ. That's That's the project that the Lord has in his soul winning. So there's reward for that. So the wood, hay, and stubble, you're not getting judged on that. It just burns up. It just doesn't count for anything. So we want our time that the Lord has granted us on this earth to count for something, right? We want it, want it to count for something. And if we do, we get a reward that is incorruptible and eternal, unfading, untarnished, unsullied, unpolluted. Thieves cannot break in and steal. It can't rust. It never goes away. That lasts for eternity. Point number four, the work of soul winning is also timeless and interconnected. So he goes on to stress the point of this interconnectivity of all the different 
people that are involved in soul winning. Let's look at the text, verse 37 and 38. For here the saying holds true. Here's another saying. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. He's saying that to the disciples who just showed up and now he points out at the harvest that's coming toward them right now. Others have labored and you've entered in to their labor. One sows and one reaps, of course, is another proverbial statement like in verse 35. Others have lab- labored. So if, if it was just a Christian and not Jesus witnessing to the woman, who are the ones who probably invested in her already? Well, she said she worships at Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans only held to the Pentateuch, so they only believed in the book of books that Moses wrote. So Moses poured into her, right? Teachers poured into her. Whatever family members or others who took their faith at that time, as much as they had invested in her. And who was providentially orchestrating all that? The God who appoints. You didn't choose me, I chose you, he said to the disciples. I appointed you for this. So it's by divine appointment. So others have labored. Maybe John the Baptist could be another guest because remember, he moved north of Jerusalem up into the country of Judea and perhaps got even all the way into Samaria or at least his teachings did by the time that Jesus came to the well. He was the one who was paving the way, wasn't he, John the Baptist? So no doubt something got through to her. The prophets, she's probably heard from someone teaching her about what the prophets said. How else would the woman know, by the way, that Messiah is coming if she hadn't been poured into? She's not psychic, right? She's not omniscient. So somebody, she learned something along the way. And so Jesus is making it clear that there's sowers. Then the sowers typically have the long-term duty, don't they? Especially with our family members or some friend we've had for a long time, maybe as far back as high school. We're praying for different people, whether it's coworkers, family members, or somebody we knew from long ago. They typically have the longer job than those who reap. It always reminds me of the, when I heard that, uh, I don't know if some documentary or what, how they made the, built the highways through the mountains in North Carolina, drilling through solid granite. And I get reminded of that daily now because they're developing a subdivision of some 400 houses right next door to me. And Wilson County, you know, the rock in Wilson County? Wilson County. And so it's solid rock. So I get to hear all day long. But eventually, what do I hear? (laughs) I hear it all day long. But they would drill. And there's those that drill and drill and drill and drill. Blaster comes, packs it, sets it. And then there's the crew that come in. I don't know if you thought about them, but the crew that comes in to remove the stone. So everybody's involved. I want you to see the interconnectedness of what God's doing again so that it, it challenges our pride. So there's, there can't be pride there because the Lord has been working on this soul for some time because he's the one that soul, saves souls. Remember, there isn't a human being. There isn't a disciple, an apostle. There isn't a plain Christian. Not one can save one single soul. We have to remind ourselves of that sometime if the Lord was pleased to use us to set the charge. We love doing that. Who doesn't like setting the dynamite? So it's something that has been going on for some time. And some of you have known, I know I've known of someone that I've prayed for, not just years, but decades. And the Lord used someone else to set the charge. And it was fantastic. So it's humbling, but then it's reassuring too. It's like somebody else is working on that person that you love. There's 330 million people just in our country alone. 
There's other Christians here. There's other people that can make maybe other ancillary points that would set the stage, that would be a stew, just the right mix, like when they mix the the things that cause the explosion. He knows because he knows those souls and he knows his intention to win them and he'll do it, sadly, with or without us. That's the thing. Early church father Origen said this, as far as her being poured into, did not Moses and Elijah... Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Did not Moses and Elijah, the sowers, rejoice with the reapers, Peter, James, and John, when they saw the glory of the Son of God at the Transfiguration, end quote? Yeah, of course they did. Wow. Here's Moses all the way back to Moses, for goodness sake. He's like, man, I did all this work. And by the way, he wasn't a grumbler is my point. It's like, and by the way, I didn't even get to go into the promised land just because I struck the rock twice. How's that fair? None of that. Or Elijah, all the, oh my goodness, the prophets of Baal and all of the drama and him getting wanting to never have been born, crawling under the broom tree and all the rest of it, right? No, they were just rejoicing. They were rejoicing. How would you like a tape recording of that conversation with those two and Jesus? Wow. But again, it's not in the text of Scripture, is it? No. As a matter of fact, the only one who speaks up is who? Why does he speak up? Because Peter's being Peter. Should I make some tents here? One for Moses. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yes, sir. (laughs) Wow. Okay. 1 Corinthians 3. 5 to 7. You're from very familiar with this text too. What then is Apollos? See, this is the, where the humble part's supposed to come in. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he's speaking of himself here. What is Paul? Servants. That's what we are. 1 Corinthians 4 7. He says, How should one view us? They should view us as servants of God. Servants through whom you believed. Through whom? Instrumental. As the Lord assigned. To each. So again, there's the sovereignty of God in all of this business. I planted, Apollos watered, but God did what? Gave the growth, right? Who causes that seed that you buried in your vegetable garden to actually grow, to sprout? Isn't a husk something that has to die around the germ? What makes that thing grow? What brings life to anything? So if you're the guy that did the original plowing of the garden, you came over with your tiller, and you came back a couple months later, and you're like, wow, garden looks pretty good. Sort of patting yourself on the back. That's a nice tiller that I got. I got one of those gym dandies. It's powerful. Dude, you don't know, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're too limited in your understanding of how the weeding had to happen and the nourishing and and all of the rest of it. And even after all of that, whatever it took to tend that garden, this is the long sowing, right? Even after all of that, God must give the increase. I have dear friends, of course, who have familiarity with horticultural principles who have come over and helped me in a very sweet, kind and non-condescending way tell me why things are dead at my house. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And I appreciate it. (laughs) So that's that's it. God gave the growth, verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is what? Anything. I, I am nothing here apart from his use of me and what he's doing through me. And when he's through with me, My life will be over. My role in that evangelizing project is done. I've I've done my part, and we should be excited that there is a continuum here. God is is outside of time. God God is eternal. So this He's always at work. And again, get we should be confident in that and also very humbled by that. We for we are, he finishes there in verse nine. God's fellow 
workers. So then we can rejoice together, as Jesus just said to his disciples in the text. He shared the work of soul winning in an interconnected way. So there's no envy, no jealousy that would divide the workers that he dealt with, that Paul dealt with in Corinth. I am Paul, I am of Apollos. He dealt with that right out of the gate with that epistle. You're dividing the Lord's church. Shame on you. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you save Crispus and Gaius, the household of Stephanus, and if there's a few others, I don't know, but you're making me ashamed of you. Don't do that. Don't do that to the Lord's church. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed. Many, it says, in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Believed in him. That expression, how strong was their faith at this point? We don't know. The text doesn't say for certain. We know that there are those that believed on that because of the testimony, but then they're going to invite him to their town for two days, and then they're going to say, we believe now because we heard his word. It goes beyond her testimony now. But in Acts chapter 8, we see something of this uh, continuation, this interconnectedness, because after, after the Samaritan woman and the townspeople of Sychar, we see Philip going into Samaria. Remember that? Acts chapter 8, when the scattering happened. And so Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 6 Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention. Wow, this is exciting. Paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And then verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. So he had a successful preaching ministry. I remember being struck by that in the early days first reading through Acts and thinking, Wow, Philip, dude, you really pulled it off. That's some powerful preaching. They're all, but now you get to this story in the gospel. Who started the evangelism there? Jesus did. He did with the woman at the well. John the Baptist paving the road. There's others that came before you, Philip. And I'm sure he realized that. Verse 14 and 15, after Philip came Peter and John. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. You see, this is a continuum. It's just ongoing. This soul winning never stops. And we're all a part of that, or we have opportunity to be, if we submit ourselves to it. So because of the woman's testimony, this we have to remember is the impact that one person's simple, sincere testimony can have. She's not waxing eloquently. She's not telling telling them all of the things that she learned from him. She's just saying, I'm amazed that there is one who understands me the way that he does. He's exposed everything about me. I get the sense that he knows every single thing. Can this be the Christ? Humble, simple, but powerful. And many believed. We have to remember that. Because look at who this person was. I mean, the first time I went back to my hometown and saw some of the uh, hometown running buddies from the old days, they don't want to hear about my testimony. They, they, They don't care. But you give it anyway because you never know what God's going to do because he's the one who has to set the charge. So here's this woman who's humbled herself. She's this known across. I mean, it's not a big town. It's a small little fishing village. And here she's known for her for historical immorality. Yet the Lord is pleased to use that to open their hearts up. He told me all that I ever did. Penetrated their hearts. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. They asked him to stay and to speak to all of them. You know, if you lack 
the sense of the Lord's presence or being with you, it might just be that you haven't asked him. You haven't sought him. You, as he says in, in James 4, verse 2, second part, you do not have because you do not what? Ask. He's your father. Ask him. Seek him. Search him. And say, I need you here. They asked him to stay with them. That's it. And he did. The only time that he's stayed in a town for two, day, two days by their request. Just absolutely amazing. Two men on the road to Emmaus, remember? They were impressed by him too. What did they say? In Luke 24, 29, stay with us. Would you, if, if you, if Jesus came back and you're walking along, you realize this is the Christ, the Messiah, are you going to say, hey, you, you, you want to come to dinner? I mean, we would be falling down in reverence and awe and praising. They're like, stay with us. And he does. How remarkable is that? He stays with them. Okay. <laughs> this, is, this amazes me about our Lord. Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Last point, we get done. Point number five. The work of soul winning is accomplished by God through his word and his spirit. That way he gets all of the glory. Verse 41 and 42, and many, list, many more believed because of his word, because of the things that he taught over those two-day period. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard our, for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We vetted this thing out like the Bereans. We searched, we listened to him, see if that comported with Scripture. If that made sense, and it made perfect sense. So you've got those that listen to her testimony and see this completely transformed life, and many believed. And then you've got even more that believe because they spent two days listening to him. His word is powerful. We should never doubt the transformational efficacy of the word of God. If it's his intention to change a person's life, he will. And we use this word to do that. In the spirit who has to light that, he has to set that charge. He has to bring that light in that Isaiah prophesied. He's got to turn that on. So we just bring the word of God. We don't hold that back. We bring the word of God. This is Jesus. This is, this is who the Bible says he is. He, let me tell you about what he's done in my life. Make him come alive. Did he save your life? I mean, do we really savor that? Do we really wrap our mind? No, do we wrap our hearts around that? He saved my life. I have eternal life because he saved me. You have, you have to put them in a position where they either declare that you are genuinely transformed by the living Christ or that you're nuts. You're crazy. I've got people thinking both. They're probably both right to a certain degree. John six sixty three. Jesus says, It is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. Yet we're called to witness. That's right, because you have to remember who's actually winning the soul. It comes through my word and through my spirit, according to my timetable, according to my will and my appointment. He goes on, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So it's the word, it's the spirit, though, that gives life. So it takes both. You can read, my brother, you talked me into reading the Bible when I was lost, when I was a, a, a rank pagan, and I finally read it, what he wanted me to read. It made no sense at all to me. It was dull. It was just stories. It was just words on a page. And then one day he came and saved my life and the words exploded with life. He became, his, his visage spiritually was palpable. He was there as he is now. There. 
That's what we want to happen. We have to use, do things His way. We use the Word of God and His Spirit, and we pray to that end. A couple of verses and we're done. 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5, Paul writing, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. See, that can, that can slow us down, can't it? Oh, I've got to take an evangelism class. Well, maybe that might be helpful, but you, no, you don't have to. Tell them about Jesus and what He's done in your life. He goes on, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Here they are. I actually have the Bereans in here for you, I think. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed. That's why. They're like that second crowd who invited him to stay for two days. No, no, no. We want to hear more from you. We're, we're getting there. We, we see some plausibility to this, but we want to ask you some more questions and get more information. That's exactly what they did here on Mars Hill, the, 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 in chapter 17, 11 to 12 of Acts. And finally, this beautiful verse from our Lord's Prayer to the Father. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Let that challenge all of us. And let us begin to find ways of employing the mastery of Jesus himself, who gives us this as an eternal narrative, so we ourselves can engage in the work that he's given us to do more effectively. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word and I'm almost sorry that we're departing the woman at the well, Lord. It's been so powerful, but I know you have much more ready for us as we move through John's gospel. Indeed, these four chapters have been powerful at, 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 every, at every turn. We see you. The more we read and the more we seek you, the more you're sought after, the more you reveal yourself to us. May we be diligent in our devotionals to be in the Word daily, to be a Berean, to see if these things are so. And Lord, reveal Yourself to us, to all those who have not had You revealed to them. I pray that You would reveal Yourself to them now and help us, Lord, who do know You, to be more effective in the presentation of this powerful Gospel You've entrusted to us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.